I think Democrats stand for the idea that every American, no matter where they live or who they are, should be able to earn a good life. Personally, I think we are a party of overpromising. I think you have a lot of very liberal coastal Democrats who talk a lot about big ideas and big goals, which there's nothing wrong with it inherently, but the challenge is we underdeliver. From Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? You know, back in April, Bill Crystal and Michael Steele were guests on Meet Me in the Middle, and they both had plenty of self-criticism for the Republican Party's direction. So it seems that turnabout is fair play. We're about to hear from the team that conducted a truly insightful six-month study after the Democratic performance in local elections that the New York Times dubbed the most thorough act of self-criticism carried out by Democrats, or Republicans for that matter. On the one hand, from a 10,000-foot level, you'd say that the analysis is self-addressed to the victorious party of 2020. But this report is despite their success. Democrats fell short of their goals, and now their position in those House and Senate seats are fragile, to say the least. The next election cycle is approaching faster than you'd think. It's coming right up next year, just a proverbial minute away. And the overall assumption is that Democrats are playing defense. Republicans could very well regain control of both the House and Senate. And basically, it doesn't seem to be about who will win, more about who will lose, essentially giving away control. This is an interesting show for us. We'll still look at all these issues from the middle. But this is a close-up on how a party whose opponents appear to be self-destructing is still struggling with its own message. The gulf between its own center and the more progressive, and how they communicate their positions to you, the voters. This is Politics, Meet Me in the Middle. I'm Bill Curtis. My co-host again is Jane Albrecht. She's an international trade attorney who's represented U.S. economic and business interests to high-level government officials in many countries. Full disclosure, she's president of the local Democratic Club, so her experience will be very handy for her today. She's also a member of the U.S. Supreme Court Bar, and she's been involved with several U.S. presidential campaigns. Hey, Jane, nice to see you. Always good to see you, and welcome, Quentin and Lene. So we have two amazing guests on our panel today. Lene Erickson, she's a senior vice president for the Social Policy and Politics Program at Third Way. This is a national think tank that champions modern center-left ideas, seeking to better understand and connect with voters in the middle, and persuade moderate Americans to support social policies. She's been featured on all the major newspapers and all kinds of magazines, and she's appeared on all the major news channels. Welcome, Lene. Nice to have you here. Thanks so much. And Quentin James, he's founder and president of The Collective, where he works to create an America where black people are equally represented at every level of government. His organization has helped more than 110 candidates win general elections at the local, state, and federal level thus far. Among the many influential positions Quinton held, which would take a whole show to list for you, he has served as national board member for NAACP. He's the founder of Inclusive, a diversity hiring initiative, and he was named one of the Roots 100 Most Influential African Americans back in 2018. How you doing, Quinton? Nice of you to join us. I'm good, Bill. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start right off by defining some of these companies and what they stand for. Let's start with the collective. Can you tell us a little about this program? Yeah, we started off back in 2016 as a federal PAC. We recruit, train, and fund Black candidates who run for office on the local, state, and federal level. Since 2016, we've now kind of grown. And so we have a 501c3 arm that does nonpartisan voter registration. 
We have a 501c4 arm that does get out the vote messaging. Our federal PAC is still up and running and doing great work. But we also have two super PACs as well that run independent expenditures supporting Black candidates around the country. So we kind of have a twofold mission. One is supporting Black candidates up and down the ballot. And second now is encouraging Black voters to come out in record numbers like we saw in some places in 2020. What's the difference between a super PAC and a PAC? Yeah, it's a great question, Jane. Thank you for asking. So a federal PAC essentially allows us to work directly in coordination with candidates, meaning we can engage with them, we can communicate with them. But due to that coordination, we have limitations in terms of how much we can support them financially. So as a federal PAC, we have a limit of $5,000 contributions per year or per election, rather, for federal candidates. A super PAC allows us to raise unlimited amounts of money and spend unlimited amounts of money we must do that independently from those candidates and those campaigns. So we can't coordinate in any way. It has to be completely separate. So that's a difference from a PAC and a super PAC. Well, there's a whole lot of really interesting findings in this report that have to do with what you do every day. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. But let's uh, ask Lene to define the third way. Can you tell us a little about this organization? Sure. We're a nonprofit organization that really tries to understand voters in the middle. We know that in our political system, particularly in Washington, D.C., both the far left and the far right are very well represented (laughs) in Congress, on social media, in elections. But there's not as many people focused on really understanding the American middle or people who maybe have some agreement with Republicans on some things and Democrats on other things. And so I run all of our public opinion research trying to really understand those voters. And given the current state of our politics, we are certainly putting that understanding to work to try to elect Democrats in red and purple districts because we think the Republican Party has really shown itself not to be a place for the middle at this point, that the way to advance what we want to see, pragmatic progressive change, is really through the Democratic Party. And that's why we partnered on this project together. Well, your position is near and dear to our heart here on Meet Me in the Middle, so we appreciate you joining us. (laughs) Did the third way grow out of the Democratic Leadership Council? The Democratic Leadership Council was also a group that was Democratic and pro-business and supported by a lot of corporations. And my understanding is the third way is also supported by a lot of corporations. We have no affiliation with the DLC. There is kind of a wing of the party that both the DLC and Third Way, you could say, belong to, which I would call now pragmatic progressive. But the way that I think about it, the moderate Democrat of the 1990s looks very different than the moderate Democrat of today. So, for example, I'm LGBT and I consider myself a moderate Democrat. I wouldn't have really been welcome in that 1990s coalition, but here I am today. And so I think the way that you think about the center left has really changed. And we are coming from a perspective that we're capitalists and we want to see Americans succeed in capitalism, but we're supported by individual donors and by foundations who support our work just like any other think tank. So can you define the Latino Victory Fund a bit? Sure. Latino Victory Fund is a wonderful other partner. 
we had three partners on this big project that were kind of outside groups that weren't affiliated with members of Congress, because we thought if you're really going to have an in-depth look at what happened, you have to have a little distance from those members who have a lot of feelings about what happened in their own race. So Collective and Latino Victory were the other two partners that came together on this project with us. And Latino Victory does something similar to what Quentin does, only for Latino candidates. So thinks a lot about how to help Latino elected officials who have been elected stay in office and to elect more folks who are representative of that coalition and to really have a deeper understanding of Latino voters than maybe a lot of the consultant class. What caused these three organizations to come together to do this study of the 2020 election? Well, we had looked at the results and had been a bit disappointed down ballot. We know we're very happy, obviously, that Joe Biden has the White House. And thank God we have a very narrow majority in the Senate and the House majority shrunk. And looking at midterms, usually the president loses people from his party in the midterm right after he gets elected. So between that and redistricting, we know it's going to be a very hard upcoming election. So we wanted to see what were the lessons we could learn. But we reached out to partners because Third Way is seen as representing one wing of the Democratic Party, rightly so. We have a perspective and we really wanted the entire party to take this study seriously. And so we came to folks like Quentin to see if they wanted to partner so we could figure out what happened and then what that means going forward. Why is the Third Way met with so much hostility from the left? I mean, I think that the Democratic coalition is a a lot of herding cats, and we have a lot more diversity of opinion than the current Republican coalition does. And so we always have internal policy disagreements, political disagreements, and we're robust in arguing about what is the best way to win. And I think that's why we're actually in power right now. You know, you see the people who lost seem to have no interest in looking at what they did wrong, and they just continue to double down. So we like to be self-reflective and have in-the-family conversation. Quentin, what made you guys decide to join with The Third Way and do this study? Last cycle, 2020, we saw a record number of Black candidates running for Congress, running even for U.S. Senate, but none of those challengers won their elections. And that was not only disappointing, but for us, we were just inquisitive as to what really happened. We had our thoughts, but the depth of the research that we were able to do, I think, brought out some interesting findings. And so that was kind of the the primary reason for us is thinking about Jamie Harrison, who's now the DNC chair, raised a record amount of money running for the U.S. Senate in South Carolina, right? The most ever raised by a Democratic nominee for Senate, but came up short, right? While that's kind of one race and one specific issue, again, you look at folks like Jackie Gordon up in New York or Candace Valenzuela out in Texas phenomenal Black and Afro-Latino candidates running for office, one of the challenges that we always have is money. Does the party and does the broader democratic infrastructure support Black candidates at par? Last cycle, that happened, (laughs) but we still came up short. And so this study for us was needed, it was necessary, and we're just so thrilled that we were able to partner up on it. Actually, let's dive into that for just a minute, because you found out some very interesting things about the communication gap between Democratic candidates and people who were sort of treated as one group rather than individuals. Is that kind of one of the things that you found out with your research and one of the problems that got in the way of the Black candidates being able to win their seats? 
It is, Bill. And, and I think part of it is not just Black candidates, but I think Black voters as well being treated as a monolith. And that hurts Democrats across the country in blue states and quote unquote red states. When you're running for Congress, right, you're running for a district that has diverse populations. And so as a party, sometimes we think of Black voters as this one dependable voting block. And while that's true, right, 90% of African Americans support Democrats. One of the things that we saw is that the turnout numbers and the support numbers vary depending on where candidates were running and what states they were running in. For instance, in North Carolina, we saw the highest Black turnout in the country in terms of those kind of swing states. But again, those Black candidates running for Congress and, and other candidates, even folks like Sherry Beasley, who's now running for U.S. Senate, while she did even outperform Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, she was not able to win statewide. She lost by less than 5,000 votes. But at the same time, Governor Roy Cooper was able to get reelected. And so a lot to unpack around what was happening with Black turnout. But one of the things that we did find, as you mentioned, is our messaging and communication treats African-Americans as if they're just one large block. We don't think about young African-Americans differently than how we think about older African-Americans. And what we know from just even the Democratic primary for president, that those two blocks, just based solely on age, have to be approached very differently. Younger African-Americans, for instance, supported Bernie Sanders and other kind of more left-leaning candidates for president. But older African-Americans supported Joe Biden by a huge swath. Actually, it was kind of the reason why he was able to kind of come back and win that primary. And so even that like micro analysis of even that, that doesn't happen in our messaging as a party, but definitely not for the candidates who are running for a House and Senate this past cycle. Those type of findings are really instructive to how we approach the midterms coming up. But Quinton, overall, your report showed that there's overwhelming support for Democrats versus the Republicans by the black population. But you also found that generally black people don't trust the Democratic Party. What did you find there? What did you mean by that? Talk to black voters, right? If you actually engage them in research, you'll kind of understand that a lot of black voters see voting for the Democratic Party as a, I wouldn't say this, right, but I think the point for your viewers, like sometimes as a lesser of two evils, quote unquote. Now, that can be exaggerated at times, but I do think the Democratic Party had a lot of work to do to strengthen the relationship with Black voters in general, the Black community at large. I think the Democratic Party, the DNC chair, the president, they would all agree with that. I think we've been seeing improvement. The Republicans and Trump actually picked up on that quite well. Exactly. Trump kept saying, they're just taking you for granted. It worked to some extent, right? Not to the extent of helping him win the election, but we did see more Black people supporting Donald Trump than we did see even four years ago versus Mitt Romney or George Bush. And so Trump and the Republicans should be given, quote unquote, credit for their ability to pick up on Black voters. They're very good at messaging and targeting that messaging, and the Democrats could learn something from that in terms of how well they do that. Quentin, to drill down on something you said before, so maybe you can explain it to me, it sounds like in the Black population, young people are not getting out to vote. Is that what you're saying? To some extent, yeah. Well, if the majority of Black people are younger, yes. but you're getting way more older Black Americans to vote than young, mm -hmm. then it stands to reason that you must be saying that it's tough to get the Black young vote out. The challenge that I struggle with here is that young Black people are more socially aware. They're more socially conscious. They are making their voices heard. They're marching and protesting. 
but they are not seeing the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, frankly, as a reason to step out and give a vote. It is a conscious choice not to vote. It, it isn't, we like to call it apathy, right? They're apathetic. They actually aren't apathetic. They actually just don't believe that our politics are in a place to bring real solutions. And that is actually an indictment on our political system. And that's what's more scary to me is they're opting out of the system as a choice, not as a, I'm not informed, I'm not aware, I'm not being asked to vote. They are. They're just choosing not to do so. For the sake of what you've learned from this research study, if your observation is we're having trouble getting out the young black voter, what is your message to the candidate to turn that around? Yes. Number one, defund the police is a death nail to your campaign, no matter where you're running, right? So even having black candidates who didn't run on that message, they were still targeted with ads saying they were supportive of that. So as a party at large, we need to move very far away from that messaging immediately. Number two, we have to do a better job, meaning earlier investments, earlier engagement with all voters, but definitely voters of color, definitely young voters of color. If we don't do that, again, that's another death nail to our ability to win the midterms next year. I think those two things are what's most critical. We were, again, surprised with the funding, right? The money came to support all Democratic candidates last cycle, which I think you would have never heard me say that in past elections. So if we have the candidates, we have the resources, it's a question of strategy, right? And so now it's about, again, earlier engagement, better engagement of, of Black people, and moving away from the messaging around defund the police. So when we come back from this very quick break, I'm going to ask you, did you have the right candidates? We'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. All right, we're back with Quentin James and Lene Erickson. And Lene, here we had a situation where the Trump effect would have given the Democrats a practical walk-on, one would think. So many Republicans were caught up and diverted in Trump politics, and it would have seemed like an opportunity for the Democrats to make sense of real issues. Did you have the right candidates in 2020 to actually meet your goals? I think that the candidates were phenomenal, and particularly the candidates that we recruited in 2018 that then contributed to that blue wave. But the problem was we had taken so much ground in 2018, we were really defending an enemy territory. And I'll give you a specific example. You know, one of my favorite 2018 freshman members of Congress, Sochi Torres Small, represented bottom two thirds of New Mexico. That was a Trump plus 10 district. But she won it in 2018. She had commercials with the Border Patrol. She was pro-gun. She had all of these positions that actually made a lot of sense in her district. But it was so, so hard to win a rural district like that in a presidential year. They got out the number of voters they thought that they needed to win. But then they had this huge surge of non-likely white voters that overtook. They were really voters that the pollsters never expected to come out, but they came out for Trump. And so another one of the assumptions I think Democrats always make is every unlikely voter is a Democratic voter. If we get turnout up, that means we win. <laughs> and we really saw in 2020 that that wasn't the case. There were a heck of a lot 
of low propensity white voters that came out for Donald Trump that certainly were not there to support Xochitl Small or the other Democrats down ballot. Have you learned things from this report that you didn't already suspect and that you don't think that the candidates already knew when they were campaigning? I'll tell you one thing that surprised me the most is the fact that where the attacks that Republicans were waging against Democratic candidates around socialism, defund the police, extreme, you're an extremist, where those were really waged throughout the GOP won more voters of color in those places. And I think your assumption is, oh, if those attacks were working, it was with those swing white voters. No, it was with everybody. And we saw this in South Florida. You know, people, particularly immigrant communities that maybe have some relationship with the word socialism, they were very turned off by the messaging that they heard. It's true of a lot of the AAPI community as well. And some districts in California, that's one in four voters. And you see the Democrats just not coming back and defending themselves against these attacks around socialism, around defunding the police, around just being an extremist or radical. And folks believed it. And it wasn't just white voters. You've got to assume, by the way, the Republicans know that that was successful for them and they're going to do that and then some next time. So it kind of puts a Democratic candidate back on the canvas and it's a hard place to fight from. What is going to be your advice, things that you've learned from this report that helps a candidate deal with those issues because they're coming up again in a year? That's right. The two things that distinguish candidates that won or overperformed dealing with those attacks versus those that lost, one was going up early with positive messaging talking about what you're doing for people, persuading them early, because then when those crazy attacks come in at the end, people just don't buy it. And that's what happened with Joe Biden. You know, when someone said Joe Biden wants to defund the police, he's like, get out of here. And, you know, you just don't believe it. It's not plausible because you know who Joe Biden is and that just doesn't track. So, but that's harder to do if you're a down ballot candidate, but it was crucial in the places it was done. And the other piece was to respond. And so much of the consultant common wisdom in D.C. is, well, just keep on your message. Don't talk about their stuff, because if you're talking about their issue, you're losing. Well, if they're the only one talking about that issue and you never push back on this crazy attack, they're the only one speaking. And that's who the voters hear. So if you never say, what are you talking about? I don't want to defund the police. I want to fund community policing to make it work for all of our citizens. If you didn't do that, it didn't work. And we saw, you know, Lucy McBath is this fantastic member of Congress from suburban Atlanta, and she made a very stark video. She got hit, African-American candidate with these defund the police attacks. And she came back and she said, my son was murdered and I worked with the police to put his killer in jail. I don't want to defund the police. I want to work with the police to make our communities safe. And she said it straight to camera and she didn't worry about who was going to attack her on Twitter for it. And she won. I think the Democratic Party has a problem with its brand. On the one hand, it doesn't really have a brand. That's a problem. And it hurts all the candidates. And secondly, to the extent it does have a brand, it's Democrats have never seen a tax they don't like. Democrats want to overregulate. I don't know why, as a Democratic Party, we can't say we like cops. We like good cops, and we expect them to be the best of the best. But we like cops. They're working class people, too. I think the Democratic Party has substantive problems. I think a lot of our progressive positions are exactly what America wants and needs. Universal health care is one of them. 
the way to sell universal health care, because the time has come, is that it's good for people, it's good for business, and it's good for the insurance companies. It's what we need right now. Instead, what happened last election cycle is, is they got up and in the first debate, they said, let's get rid of all the insurance companies. People go, what? Well, that was idiotic, Jane. A lot of our solutions are the right solutions and they sell. It's how you sell them. And we got to do a better job of selling it, in my view. When you said they don't have a brand, I do think they have a brand. I think that the Republicans use their brand against them. The New York Times said about this report, that the Republican Party faces such serious political obstacles from Trump's unpopularity, growing liberalism in young voters, the country's growing diversity, and many of the party's policies are unpopular, cutting social welfare and what have you. Why does it seem that Democrats are approaching the midterms with one arm tied behind their back? And they're on the defense immediately. So part of the message is a, a message of weakness. And unfortunately, that has become part of the brand. What do you think the brand is, Bill? The major part of the brand is caring about each other, creating social policies that create a better life for everybody. Democrats have been totally incapable of presenting those concepts without also marrying them with taxes, socialism, which is an idiotic thing to even entertain Frankly, if Linnae and Quinton are capable of getting their candidates to, as Linnae just said, actually get in up front with a positive message, with a clear understanding that they get the whole process, not only the social issues, but the economy, because the Democrats' brand is mostly anchored by a lack of understanding of the economy. The thing that always really hurts my heart is when I look at polls like the one we did right after the election that ask about values of the parties and who they stand for. And the most surprising answer in the poll that we got back right after the 2020 election was we asked who stood for hardworking people. And people said Republicans by 10 points. Now, that's just like blatantly not true. I mean, <laughs> but, but if you think that hardworking people belong in the Republican Party, that's a problem. Americans like to think of themselves as working hard. That's what we want the American dream to be true. It doesn't always feel true. Certainly for people of color and people in certain parts of the country, it feels less true, but that's what we want. So when you look, one of my favorite poll questions is Pew does this worldwide survey. How important is hard work to getting ahead? In France, 40% of people say it's important. In the United States, 90% of people say it's a nine or a 10 on the 10 point scale. And that is people of every race. So we really need to, I think it, when you look at the problems with the Democratic brand, some of it is this idea that we're not for hardworking people. We don't care if you work hard or not. We just want to take care of you. We want to take care of you no matter what. And like whether you work hard or not is irrelevant. And I think most people want to think about themselves as working hard. And Quentin, what do you think the Democratic brand is? Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I, and I'm speaking, <laughs> quote unquote, on behalf of Black people right now, <laughs> I think a lot of Black people think the Democratic Party brand is we're less racist than Republicans. Ouch. I think it's true. And if we don't realize that, then we're going to be in a, a bad place next November. I think it goes to this issue of race. I think we're seeing it right now with this critical race theory debate in the country. I think we're seeing it with the quote that came out saying that Donald Trump, his one regret is that he didn't sick the army on the Black Lives Matter protesters in D.C. 
I think like that was the original sin of this country and it's one that we still haven't dealt with. And so it's one that we're gonna continue to unfortunately litigate in the public sphere, but not in the public policy sphere. And I think if we can solve that problem, right? Deal with our racial history in this country, I think a lot of the other social challenges will also start to, you know, be dealt with. Even the concept of hard work, right? It is a a known belief, right, in the black community that you have to work twice as hard as white people if you're black in this country, right? And like even that is a sad state of our society and our culture in 2021, right? And so when I think about our brand, I, I think it, it really is like uh, many Black people think it's a lesser of two evils. Personally, I think we are party of overpromising. I think you have a lot of very liberal coastal Democrats who talk a lot about big ideas and big goals, which there's nothing wrong with it inherently, but the challenge is we underdeliver we don't deliver on what we talk about so much. And so we don't give any, in, in my opinion, enough people something to fight for that's tangible, that's gonna really improve their lives each and every day. And until we do that, I think we're gonna continue to see a drop off of black support for Democrats and black turnout overall, just as, as voters in our democracy. The Democrats need a very strong central message about the economy in 2022. When we come back from this break, I'm going to ask you what that message specifically should be with everything that we've just talked about. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with Quentin James and Linnea Erickson. Linnea, you're on the spot. What is the single, powerful, central message about the economy that the Democrats should present in 2022? I think Democrats stand for the idea that every American, no matter where they live or who they are, should be able to earn a good life. They should have the opportunity to earn a good life, that there are lots of barriers to that opportunity. We're going to help you take down those barriers. We're going to give you the tools to succeed, but you're going to have to work for it. What about keeping your good life? Because they're a group of people who have a good life and they think that you're going to take it away. Yeah, we have to certainly persuade those suburban college educated voters that helped deliver Joe Biden's majority that we're not going to tax them out of existence. So the fact that Biden made a pledge not to raise taxes on anybody under $400,000 a year is very important. We need to say that over and over and over and over again. And we need to make sure that we're talking about the policies we're delivering in a way that makes people feel like it's about them. So I'll give you a perfect example. We just did this child tax credit expansion. People across this country are getting more money in their paycheck because of this bill that we passed. But we keep talking only about the fact that it's going to raise a certain percentage of children out of poverty. Now, I'm really happy about that. That's great. But it makes it sound like it's just about poor people. And actually, this is the biggest middle class tax cut we could have ever looked for. So why aren't we talking about the middle-class tax cut? Talking about it as a middle-class tax cut and making it sound like it applies to you doesn't mean that children aren't going to be raised out of poverty. They still will. (laughs) But it makes it sound like it applies to more people and they'll be able to resonate with what we're delivering for them. 
I have to admit something here, which I'm going to do because this is our last show of the season and we're going to be taking a break for the summer. So I'm going to put this on the table. I'm a social issue Democrat and an economic Republican. Of course, Donald Trump succeeded in throwing me so far off that Republican bridge that what the Republicans are, are focusing on would scare any sensible person away right now, I believe. Except you guys scare the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, I'm a business owner and I want to build a life for my family and my friends that I spend time with are scared to death that you're going to do nationally what you've done in California. California is in a race with Italy to see who can tax more. And there's an oblivion in the Democratic Party where not realizing, like in California, because they tax so much and they're working so hard to make it a tough place to do business, I could list so many wealthy people that have up and left the state to go to places like Florida because the environment is different. So at the end of the day, California is going to have to keep on raising its taxes because magically there's going to be less happening in California because it's moving to Florida or Texas. What you have to remember, though, is that in order to pass anything, we have to get the Democratic moderates on board. This is not a question of the Congressional Progressive Caucus getting to just do whatever it wants. Your bulwark against the national level turning into California is Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin's not trying to do anything to you, Bill. He's not trying to take away your ability to run your business. Kirsten Cinema is not doing that. The moderate New Dems in Congress aren't doing that. They're where you are, I think, on a lot of things. I'm pretty moderate, but Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, I wouldn't describe as moderate. <laughs> what would you describe them as? I think refusing to vote against the filibuster, at least on voting issues in this environment, is increasingly becoming unspeakable. So you're to the left of Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, which means that Bill doesn't have to worry about anything. <laughs> <laughs> the question I have is the third way is there to increase the moderate voice within the Democratic Party. In this environment of Facebook, Twitter, whatever, what should the moderates be doing to increase their voice within the party? Well, the thing that we have just launched is something called Shield Pack, which is the first time we've ever done this. And what we're doing is doing what we found in the postmortem really worked, which is going to districts that we know are going to be tough in 2022 and running positive messages like the ones I've articulated, starting early, branding folks as a different kind of Democrat so that when these attacks inevitably come, then they have a leg to stand on. And then also developing, running those attack ads that we know are going to come, developing responses to those so that we have them in our pocket, we can deploy them right away, and then get back to the conversations we want to have. So we're taking the lessons from the postmortem and putting them into practice in house races in 2022. So you're sort of approaching it district by district. Yes. Lene and Quentin, we're about to take a six-week break. So this is going to be the last thing that our listeners hear for a month and a half. I'd like to ask each one of you to make a quick statement to them with what your position is on our condition, the fact that politics right now is overshadowing governance, and what you think your party will bring in 2022 if it listens to the findings of your report. And then, Quentin, you're up next. Thank you so much, Bill and Jane, for having me here today. As we approach 2022, I think it's important for your listeners to remember things could be a lot worse. We could still have President Trump and Republicans in charge who didn't take the virus, coronavirus seriously, in charge of our economy when they 
really helped wreck it and shut down the country. But Joe Biden has brought us back. Democrats have brought us back. We have shots in arms. Vaccines are readily available. And look, we got checks in people's pockets with hopefully more support on the way. I think it's really critical that Democrats continue to get things done and to not uh, lose the forest with the trees. There are deals to be made. Make those deals. And if we don't get everything we want, let's come back around in 2023 or 2024, 2025, even right after we reelect Democrats to the White House and get those things done, too. But right now, let's continue to serve the American people, uh, make progress. And I think voters will support Democrats and uh, reward us for that in 2022. Thanks, Quentin. Lene? I couldn't agree more. And I just have to say, if you are a person who cares about policy and governance in this country, there is only one party that you can stand with at this moment. I'll remind you that the Republican convention last year, they didn't even have a policy platform. They didn't offer one because the Trump worship is the policy platform. The literal party platform did not exist. They decided to do away with it because they don't care about policy. So what I would say is watch what the Democrats are doing. See where it turns out, not what you hear on Twitter. See if your life is better than it was two years ago. And then make a decision not to hand the gavel over to insurrectionists that are defending people who attack the Capitol Police and members of Congress. Okay. Well, that's an interesting way to end. Meet me in the middle for the season. Quentin, how can people follow you? Sure. Thanks so much. Folks can follow me on Twitter at QJames and also on Instagram at QJames007. Wonderful. And Lene? I'm at Lene Erickson on Twitter, and you can find more about our research and policy work at thirdway.org. Wonderful. And a special thanks for this whole season to Jane Albrecht. Jane, you've really been a a wonderful voice and support, and we appreciate you very, very much. Thank you, Lene and Quentin, for coming today. It was very interesting. For our listeners that haven't listened to episodes 61 and 62 with Bill Crystal or 63 with Michael Steele back in April, they certainly diagnosed the ills of the Republican Party as profoundly as you've just heard a conversation about the Democrats. Those shows are worth a listen as well. We look forward to meeting you here again in the middle next season. I'm sure there'll be plenty of interesting topics we can catch up on when we return. Don't forget to hit that follow button so you know you don't have to hunt around for the new season. Thanks to our producer and editor, Joey Salvia. Music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. The executive producer for this episode is Stuart Halpern. Stay cool this summer, and you know what? Be sure to call someone that you disagree with politically, and let them know that your friendship goes much deeper than that. And be sure that it does. We'll catch you next season. Bye-bye. It will be okay. From Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.